Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Merc and fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo Cold-blooded with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about lost souls. I've been thinking about the relationship of religion to psychotherapy, depression, anxiety, meaninglessness, and I've been thinking about personal responsibility, freedom, self-reflection, and the path to a grounded center self that feels at home in the cosmos and walking down the street. My guest today is Robert H. Abzug. He is the author of Cosmos Crumbling, American Reform and the Religious Imagination, Passionate Liberator, Theodore Dwight Weld and the Dilemma of Reform, and an abridged edition of William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience. His most recent book is Psyche and Soul in America, The Spiritual Odyssey of Rollo May. And it's this book that's the topic for our conversation today. Welcome, Robert, and thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. Thank you for having me here. Great. So your your book is extremely filled um, and dense in a good way. That so much so that I could have done an entire interview just on the preface. I got your preface and I was like, okay, there's the interview. I'm done. I don't even. I don't need to keep going because that's our hour. Um, but but I'd like to start where you finish. Um, you conclude the book and you say, in a world enamored of data, robotics, and artificial intelligence, May underscores the resources of individuals in shaping their own existences: love, courage, autonomy, creativity. Reading Rollo May's work today reminds us that these endangered aspirations are as important today to the crafting of a meaningful life as they were during May's own lifetime and for millennia past. Um, So two things jumped out at me there. One, we can start with, I think, endangered how, and then the next is, must we consciously craft a meaningful life? Um, Okay, well... Must we cut? Let me start with the second. Yeah, I was thinking as I read it, I'm like, oh, let's start there. I don't know that we must. I don't know what a meaningful life is except as lives. And uh, one of the things um, I certainly have experienced over many, many years, far more years than you, um, is that if you're open to the world, uh, the meanings come in very different ways, uh, switching projects, careers, um friendships, personal relationships, whatever. And that's the way one, I mean, there are certain basic uh, values, I think, that get you there. But meaning is is an abstraction. Um, Living a meaningful life is something else. And uh, so, you know, all the usual suspects, love, commitment, um, engagement with what you're doing, a feeling that um, your life is doing something for the world and for yourself uh, that you're worthwhile. Um, And in the company of others, um, when you look at yourself and um, that's kind of that open-ended sort of definition is where I would start. And the reason why it's so open-ended is because, uh, well, I take seriously this movement from religion to psychotherapy and psychology and really philosophy. Um, and yet the quest, the odyssey that May goes on um, is constantly filled with new meanings, new experiences for him. And yet he sort of leads this um, incredibly worthwhile life. 
uh, with all sorts of crazy things happening and uh, with all sorts of, I guess, what you'd call faults um, and uh, eccentricities and um, guilts and anxieties and depressions, all those things which are so common in all of our lives. Well, most of our lives. Um, he had them all, um, but he just pushed on and made a career out of essentially helping people. You said something at the beginning, you said it so casually that it, it made me smile because I thought for so many of us, that's not an easy feat. And you said being open to life, if we're open to life. Um, and maybe just to expound on that a little bit, what 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 is that for you? And and obviously, I'm I'm hoping it comes as easily to you as as you um, say it. And and maybe you can kind of share your secret to I that. As easily as I say, I mean, it's tough. And um, well, first of all, let me say that I'm in a career. Um, I've been a professor for about forty four years, and um, on the one hand. Uh, you have the freedom with tenure uh, and support to sort of pursue and explore all sorts of interests. Uh, on the other, there's a kind of um, entropy that sets in among many people, which has to do with uh, many people in the profession that has to do with needing to write just about one thing. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not leaving oneself open to new ex intellectual explorations. Um, let me let me deal with that first. I mean, I started out as a uh, if you want to know my personal all those book titles, what they all meant. Um, started out writing um, about pre Civil War America and the abolitionist movement, and my first book, Passionate Liberator, was the biography of an American abolitionist. Um, it was psychologically inflected because one of my interests, though I wasn't writing about it, was psychoanalysis, psychotherapy, psychology. Um, but um, my mentor, a great historian, Kenneth Stamm, uh, I told him I wanted to write a biography before I had chosen one. And he said, Bob, why don't you write a one volume biography of Abraham Lincoln? And I said, no. <laughs> No, because the there are you know seven hundred and eighty to a thousand books about Abe Lincoln, but also um, because at that time what I knew about him didn't draw me to him as a person, certainly as a leader, um, but not as a person. On the other hand, in reading, doing some other research, I came across the love letters of Theodore Dwight Well to one of the early. Um, members of the women's movement, Angelina Grimke. Um, and I mean, I understood him like that. And I was fascinated and compelled by that. And um, the more I explored his life, the more I thought, boy, this guy has been underdone and has lots to tell us about reformers. And then I launched on a more general book about pre-Civil War reform, was a series of biographical sketches because finally, I think once you do a biography, at least once I did a biography, um, it sets your historical mind, my historical mind anyway, in a whole different way. I look at motivation in a whole different way, understanding um, the sub-rosa themes, the unconscious, the, 
the semi-conscious themes, the personal life uh, in ways that affect history. And, and I'm going to interrupt you just for one second, because yeah, I think that that makes clear why you chose to write a book about Rollo May, because all of that, right, his his important, important role in the historical development of psychotherapy, and yet also his personal struggle that is so evident from the beginning. Um, and, and maybe we could talk a little bit about, because we've mentioned it already, the relationship of psychotherapy um, to religion, and that was certainly a, a, a jumping off point for May. Um, and that was something that I hadn't considered before. Um, the, re- the, the tight relationship in the development of psychotherapy from um, the work of ministers and, and the sort of body and something that throughout May's life he struggles in uh, with um, throughout his life and, and kind of comes to different revelations about it. Um, Later on, he says in a comment on transpersonal psychology, he didn't want to hurt them by disapproval, especially because they probably thought they were doing his program. I was not upset objectively, but sad, sadness that I had hurt them. They sought religion under a different heading. And he... He comes into his relationship with psychotherapy through his work, religious work, um, and then it transforms. What, what does that look like, that journey? Well, that's your, well first of all, um, it's not surprising that you didn't think much about religion and psychology together. Um, one of the more popular approaches for years uh, with looking at psychology or psychotherapy is, well, Freud was the original psychotherapist. He was a confirmed atheist. How could there be a connection between the two? Um, Well, as I started reading it, um, some of the major, major figures in this movement come out of seminary, um, Jews, Catholics, Protestants. And um, they give up quite often their religious theological senses, and that certainly happened with May. He wasn't a professing theological Christian, maybe after the mid-1940s, uh, and, and certainly by the 1950s. But um, he was asking some of the same questions um, and not giving such deliberate answers as theology often does or people think it does. Um, but it's right down to the core of existence, and it's why he found existentialism so powerful. Uh, He wanted to get beyond the church, and when he wanted to get beyond the church, he found out there was no church beyond that church that he was rejecting, um, quite gracefully, quite respectfully, but it wasn't him. And... um, just to, uh, oh, I don't know, just to give you a little background on May that, um, uh, or remind you of some things that are in the book that are linkages. Um, you know, when I first met him, in, I knew him for about the last eight years of his life, I should say. And when I first met him and we were talking in his study in Tiburon, um, there was tacked to the wall a yellowing piece of paper. And it was a poem by an indifferent poet from the 19th, early 20th century. Um, And basically, it was all about wanting to be of help to man. Excuse the gender. But 
in any case, that's the way it was written. Um, and it's amazing. This was when Rollo was in his mid-70s, mid to late 70s. He had about eight more years to live. But this was something that was out of a book that a friend of his gave him, a book of poetry at his high school graduation. So this is a person who climbed kind of the heights of philosophy, of psychology, world renown, and all the rest. But he retained this poem as a kind of guide. What The funny part about it is if you go find out about psychology in the late 18th century, for instance, uh, in America, I would say one of the great psychologists was Jonathan Edwards, the guy who could knock him dead in the churches during the Great Awakening. And um, later on, the, uh, in the mid-19th century, uh, spiritualists um, running seances, uh, psychologically adept people, but also people who um, claim to be able to connect others uh, to other worlds. Uh, this was very popular, still has its followers. Uh, and in fact, William James, whose book I edited, um, this was one of his passions, um, a non-theological, but transcendent way of understanding reality that he thought even as a, he helped found the American Psychological Association, one of its founding members. But he thought psychology hadn't gotten really beyond the lab. There was no psychotherapy then. Um, and what he was looking for was a way into the human mind, and I must say, the human soul, um, that would make a little clearer um, the multiplicity of experience and James thought the multiplicity of universes in which we lived. So there's a lot of this going on. Um, what happens is in American psychology, it turns radically toward experimentation, experimental psychology, um, and puts aside the, what we might call the soulful questions. Um, and there are people who, by the 1930s, worry about that. Um, but post-war, especially, um, with the existentialist movement, with humanistic psychology, all of these questions are brought up again. How do we, if we're supposed to aid people in their lives in psychotherapy, how do we do that if we don't paint a larger context, if we don't make them understand that they can act within a different understanding of themselves and a different understanding of the world in which they live. And um, that's, you know, different people go about it different ways. And Rollo was a guy who, because of his unique background, unique certainly to any of the major psychotherapists, um, he was a minister. Uh, he knew his theology back and forth. He was a, a student of, uh, not a student of, in the literal sense, but a student of the literature um, turned out by Soren Kierkegaard. He knew his religion and was turned on by the questions of religion, but was searching to find a different answer, a new, if not a new answer, a new understanding. That's probably the best way to put it. Uh, answers never really come uh, until 
very late in life, I guess. It's it's interesting uh, because you say people do things different ways, and I'm thinking about it. It's a such an interesting aspect of the book that really highlights the drastic changes in the approach and the attitudes towards psychotherapy through the 1920s and then a big shift again in the 50s and then huge again in the 80s and 90s with pharmaceutical if we want to say advances, I mean, certainly advances for a lot of people. Um, But there's a quote in the book that said, there seemed little reason to expend the time and money for long and often searing self-examination when relief using the new wonder drugs was just a a pill a day away. And, and it is a searing self-examination that, that may conducts throughout his entire life um, and settling in, in, in um, existentialism. So maybe, you could talk a little bit about the distinction between existentialism. May says existentialism is, in short, is the endeavor to understand man by cutting below the cleavage between subject and object, which has bedeviled Western thought and science since shortly after the Renaissance. Yes. Well, let me put it in different terms, because um, I would say this, this is something he was concerned about, really, um, beginning, uh, really, in the 1930s and 40s, uh, when he was uh, a student of Paul Tillich, the great theologian uh, at Union Theological Seminary, that there is a, what he felt was that, and what Tillich certainly felt, was that there was a holistic, unitary sense of self that could be strived toward. Um, That you don't have a rational side of you and an irrational side of you. You don't have a soul and a psyche, and that's why I kind of used it in the title of the book. Um, what he saw was the inter interrelationship and interpenetration of the emotions and the intellect, of um, experiencing the world on numerous levels and recognizing the connections. You know, one of the things I think about is... Uh, Stories I've heard from friends of mine who, uh, a great many friends of mine went to law school, um, and many of them became extremely successful lawyers. Um, but there were some who, when they hit about 35, maybe 40, gave it up because what they found was what they were doing was parching their soul. Now, that isn't because the law is terrible, but it's because it wasn't them. Uh, they chose that profession because it offered a good living, uh, prestige in the community, um, and yet they found that it didn't really satisfy them. It, uh, it, you know, they it sort of ran them dry. Uh, it overworked them uh, in ways that killed other relationships. Um, there were all sorts of things they found out, and finally they found the need to more authentically look at themselves and start from the inside out. Uh, in other words, put the relationship of um, the soul as the driving force in how they're going to live their lives. One of the examples that I love, by the way, um, and I I uh, only found it very late in the process of writing, um, was the story that I picked up on the internet. Uh, by the way, I love the internet um, because it's, it makes research easy and full of surprises. But this surprise was a person who ran a bar in Chicago 
and was an activist in organizing um, especially minority waitresses and barkeeps to get a better life. Um, she was burning the candle at both ends, as she said, and, you know, using that cliche. But then she had a breakdown. She just all of a sudden realized she couldn't go on living this 18-hour-a-day, 20-hour-a-day life. And so she decided to take a break, a couple of months, and she went down to Tulum in Mexico to lie on the beach and look at the antiquities and just relax and figure out her life. And she brought a pile of books, she said, um, and one of them was a book that a friend had recommended, Rolla May's The Courage to Create. And when she got back, she bought 20 copies of it and gave them out to her closest friends because it had so influenced her life and it so sort of put in sync um, feeling, emotion, and the outward expression of that in the world. Um, that is kind of what I think is cutting below. Um, you know, that kind of language is philosophical language. It's history of philosophy. You know, he needed to describe it that way because he was dealing in an intellectual community that, well, there was Descartes and there were other philosophers who tried to mend that split, Kierkegaard being one of them, Nietzsche being another one. Um, but I would say what he really was aiming toward by saying that was getting those two parts, not to be two parts, but to be an integrated person who knows enough about him or herself to actually act in the world in ways that... Uh, satisfied them, that they felt they were using their talents, that um, most of the time that they felt ethical about what they were doing. And that's existentialism um, as, a, as a product. Um, how you get there is a whole other story. And uh, that, is, in a way, is the drama of the book. He keeps on trying to figure out how he will become who he finally does become. And uh, you know, Ellie, I don't know if you remember. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Well, no, no, no. Said. I was just thinking. Uh, well, two things. I was thinking just now about the distinction between the relationship as as being one of the parts that developed in May's figuring out how how is he and how are the rest of us going to get there, and that that seemed like such a critical element that that this goal to alter the relationship between the patient and the therapist in this quest for self and this vision of, of kinship and, and the difference between concerning the other, right? Knowing the self and then um, the distinction between the other and that this relationship in psychotherapy was so different um, as far as sort of being with, right? Um, on the journey. Right. Um, I, if I hear you correctly, let me see what I'm, let's see. In other words, um, this kind of person alone rather than within a group without, you know, as defined by others. Well, that's the struggle, uh, right? It's this, it's this crazy yeah. balance of the freedom, the, the self-awareness, the individuality, yet in relation to the community, to, to God, to, to all else. And this sort of balance. Um, and then instead of being dictated to from God or from 
a a therapist or a minister that that the therapist in uh, existentialism is a different sort of relationship, right? A support in in self discovery in some sense. You know, they're walking the path. I think the self discovery is central, um, and you know, the formal existentialists and in, typically the people we call existentialists, you know, would write what they believed and then they'd say, but I'm not an existentialist. I'm just a philosopher or a playwright or whatever. But uh, one of the principles of existentialism is the origin of the self, that one is thrown into the world. Um, If not as a, a blank slate, at least as someone in order to build a life, build a meaningful life out of this essentially meaningless state at the beginning. You know, in religions, it's through behavior, it's through um, contemplation, uh, and through following theological guidances. In existentialism, it's basically through action. How do you become a person um, with a capital P, or I don't know what, but a genuine person, is not so much by thinking about how do you do that, but by acting in the world as someone who is committed to those actions. Uh, again, um, and that's the way meaning is forged. And I'm thinking of um, Kierkegaard, I'm thinking of Martin Heidegger, I'm thinking of Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, these are all people, and even Paul Tillich, the theologian, who believed in the God beyond God, um, and eventually that so abstracted himself out of um, traditional theology uh, that he ended up turning at the end of his life to Zen Buddhism because he liked the contemplative life and he was trying to sort of merge it with all that he had done as a Christian. So, you know, everybody has a way to get there um, or not. I mean, a lot of people don't. And it's, you know, if you don't, it leads to depression, loneliness, an inability to kind of relate to other people because you're not quite sure who you are yourself, or at least you're less sure. I mean, I'm not, I'm one of these people who believes that you never know who you are, but you can grow in some knowledge. (laughs) I have a sense Uh, you have a pretty strong sense of self. Just in the beginning, beginning of the interview, in, in your comments, and and I, I want to talk a little bit about the the um, May search in the how shall we live? Right, that was something that was this ongoing question from the time of his youth, and and it just continues, continues. How shall we live? Um, and and part of the things, as you're saying, life happening happening and dealing with life um, was May's bouts with TB and that, how that affected his approach to psychology uh, and, and his religious beliefs. And I want to talk about that, but I want to talk about it in, in reference to you're saying that you like the internet and I'm going to weave the two together because they seem really, really opposed. But, but you threw me when you're talking about um, maze bouts with TB and you say the, the references of the doctors encouraging, encouraging patients to read and ponder and write about their experience, even as they face the dark prospect of death. And I'm like, okay, that is not happening now. And then I was also struck by the number of people who just seemed to collapse under the weight of life. And that was sort of a, a normal occurrence 
well, okay, they just collapsed. Um, it was just too much that day. And and that no longer occurs. Or if it does, you're going to be rushed off and give, given some blood work and maybe, you know, your blood sugar's low. Um, so now I'm going to weave it together in connection with the parallels of the early 1900s and what's happening today as far as access to information and a thirst for meaning and the rise of psychological illness and mental unrest in this age, as, as he refers to it as this age of transition and a pervasive sense of emptiness and dissatisfaction. We've got one in three people on antidepressants and probably more on, on other medications. And May said we must continually make basic decisions. We are forced to live on the knife blade edge of insecurity. Um, and then the question, how shall we live? So how do you feel that, that May's bouts with tuberculosis started to uh, affect um, his relationship to, to that? Well, um, first of all, interestingly, in terms of connecting religion and psychology, how then, how then shall we live is a quote from the Bible. And it is, it's central to most religious um, beliefs and a, a central question. But the knife edge, one of the things that, <laughs> one of the things that I loved about him, um, and I don't know whether I'm like this or not, I doubt it, but he was a great believer that you constantly push against um, the unknown, uh, your creativity, your um, your ability to think beyond who you are at any moment in the world to see who you might be and and to produce things. I'm, one of the books that I loved and the reason, uh, actually it's the first book of his that I ever read, uh, The Courage to Create, is because he talks about that. He talks about the creative process and the risk-taking that happens. Um, and I'm trying to think, I'm, let me get back to this. It is, can I inter, let me talk about the internet in relation to yeah, that. Okay? Yeah, absolutely. When I said I love the internet, um, it was somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Um, but, you know, it's a two-sided thing. The information age gives us access to all sorts of people's lives and feelings and literatures and cultures um, that, uh, you know, we hardly knew about. And, uh, and in my case, uh, in the case of researching this book, what I discovered, you may remember in the last chapter, I thought was that the internet actually was instrumental in the revival of interest in Rollo May. And I think it's on two parts. One, because his, all of a sudden his ideas and his books became extraordinarily available. And by word, and mouth, word of mouth, or by um, people referring to May's work, uh, you could just go to Amazon and actually get those books. Before the internet, you couldn't. Let's talk about that as the cure and the curse. In relation to um, <laughs> what does it mean to be an authentic human being? Because I think that is, I personally think that's what is underlying the majority of um, our uh, communal distress uh, mm. in today's world is that people don't have a sense of their authentic self and maybe don't even understand what that term means. And May 
talks about humans being condemned to be free and what this then necessitates and what it means to be an authentic human being. And the piece that I think that gets lost from social media and the internet and this sort of disconnection and external comparisons is maybe what has gotten lost in people's relationship with religion and and family and community as well is the essence of religion may talks about is being the belief that something matters the presupposition that life has meaning um and that we are part of that right that that we are connected um and that our authentic self is of that meaning um Mm -hmm. um now, May, of course, May died, uh, interestingly, in 1994. There, was, there wasn't really an internet then. There was a web. And yet he still asked all these questions in the pre-internet world. And what he had to say was this, um, and it originated as early as the 19-teens and 20s with him. He was very influenced by... Um, Matthew Arnold by George Eliot by 19th century literature. Uh, Before he ever read Freud, before he ever read William James, he loved these. Uh, This poetry and um, fiction. And one of the things that these people always talk about in the background is the disintegration of worlds. Um, Dover Beach by Matthew Arnold. You know, there he is with his loved one and they're looking out at the ocean, um, and it's dark, and at least they have each other. Um, and it's that kind of Victorian darkness. Uh, there was light, too, but Victorian darkness that, in a way, he um, first, it's in a way, that literature helped him escape from some of the simplifications and some of the um, not terribly deep uh, understandings of life uh, in growing up. And so he's thinking about that. What it comes down to finally over the 1930s and 40s and 50s, and then really blossoms in the 60s and 70s, is his understanding well, let me, let me back up. In the 40s and 50s, he, like many people, are concerned with the organization man, with, um, you know, what seemed like a deadly um, suburban uh, corporate way of life uh, that was getting people um, a reasonable living, but on the other hand, uh, leaving them emotionless. Or if there was emotion, it was depression, anger, uh, for no particular reason. And what he discovered in the 1960s, and it's one of the interesting things to me because um, I really came of age in from the mid-60s on, uh, was that all of a sudden all of the rules were being tested. All of the standards were being tested. All the values were being tested. And so he couldn't really look at the world as filled with um, people over-organized. Rather, he was dealing with a kind of anarchy of a society where all of a sudden all the seams seemed to be showing and breaking. And that was when he started to write more and more about community. 
and the need for ultimately in a book called the cry for myth his last book the need for a common mythos uh, within modern society that I think he romanticized, but certainly you could say that in the ancient world, in the medieval world, um, in the Renaissance world, there was some coherence. At least you could say that in those golden ages, as we know them now, things look pretty good, but now the world is falling apart. And uh, so it was not only self, but also community. And uh, that was a kind of, not a revelation to him, but all of a sudden a different balance uh, was being created. Uh, the existential uh, move from being not only um, about oneself, but also about the world and the people, the institutions in which uh, one acted. And his later life is filled with that uh, notion. You have at the beginning but, of the book, um, yeah. Matthew Arnold's um, self-dependence. Still, still, let me, as I gaze upon you, feel myself becoming vast like you. Resolve to be thyself and know that he who finds himself loses his misery. And May definitely sets out and spends his life finding himself. And then maybe the other piece of it is just what you've been talking about, which is this pressure of the guiding fiction and and it's clear that may and you you talk about it throughout the book has has this inferiority complex um that he you know developed under very understandably from from the the childhood that he had um and the sensitive personality and the vast um level of compassion and empathy and and intellect uh, and that he struggles throughout, you can see with this idea of, of being free and independent and developing this, this clear sense of self with the need for external validation. I mean, it goes even in your last chapter, you're like, oh my gosh, he's still so worried um, about what people thought or did he get the credit um, or what, what, will, what, what will they think um, and, and working so hard for that. And mm -hmm. May talks about it preventing a person from overcoming a sense of helplessness by keeping him or her in a world of narrowed action and in authentic compensations, often wrapped up and hidden in a secret or openly proclaimed myth of superiority. Such a guiding fiction, only faintly understood on a conscious level, shaped an individual's response to the world. Um, do you feel like May had resolution with that towards the end? Uh Toward the very end, yes. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things that helped, and I hope I didn't get too sentimental about this, um, uh, but his last last of three marriages, um, uh, I know Georgia's still alive, Georgia May. She's in her early 90s and all there. She was a Jungian analyst, and she was both an accomplished woman in the world, but also extraordinarily supportive and non-combative. Uh, she could defend herself for sure, but she wasn't looking to tear him down. She wasn't looking to, she was looking to be supportive of him in his, you know, what was becoming his late 70s and early 80s. And he himself was pretty charming and, you know, he loved this. Uh, that was a real change in his late life. Um, and so, you know, Every, every time he gets an award, every time somebody gives him an honorary degree, oh, it lasts for a few days or weeks or months. And then he says, yeah, but 
who am I and what am I doing? And after all, there's this person or that person who's has more fame um, and things that, you know, I guess we would all consider, you know, fairly natural in life. If, uh, if I was up for some great prize and was a finalist and didn't get it, oh my God, or worse still, was it nominated? How would I feel? Um, and, Recent studies uh, say you there, wouldn't feel as bad as you badly as you think you would. <laughs> That's coming out of Yale research, happiness research these days. Uh, and it wouldn't last. It wouldn't last quite as long as you would anticipate it lasting. The disappointment. No, but it's interesting. In in May's case, mm-hmm. it's what makes May different is yeah. that it built on these early insecurities, and. Um, it, built on this uh, just very strange family he came out of. Uh, and he never could quite, well, there are other things. You know, he came out of Union Theological Sem- Seminary uh, to become really an important force in psychology as early as the early 50s, uh, not only his writings, but in organizing uh, psychologists to be fully recognized as therapists. Um and yet he felt kind of alone in that world. Uh, he had friends, but it was kind of, he was still discovering a world that he didn't feel to- totally comfortable in and that he remained that way. Um, I remember a, f- a friend of mine who was at a, uh, a dinner for a journalist, Max Lerner, who was a uh, columnist and a writer, uh, most best known in the 50s and 60s, a retirement dinner, and Rollo knew him. And uh, when I told uh, this friend what I was writing about, or who I was writing about, he said, oh yeah, he's so stiff, and mm-hmm. so formal. And it was based on this one, one experience of having, being in a, you know, a a dinner of 15, 20 people and um, people getting up and saying a word or two. Well, Rollo came off as being very guarded, uh, very formal um, and, you know, not exactly uh, the person you'd think he was uh, based on his writings. And uh, of course, this is one of the things that I learned about Rollo May and learned, therefore, in reflecting about myself or just about anybody, is there are things, there are goals and there are um, understandings that you can intellectualize and you can strive toward, but an awful lot of life is aspirational. It isn't who you are, it's who you want to become, or it's what you want to create. And uh, this is a big theme in, in May's life. And um, he makes it, you know. On the other hand, where does he feel most at home? And this he even reflected upon in our talking with each other. When in the 50s, he um, became a therapist in New York at the William Allenson White Institute, training analyst as well. He found an office at the very top, the, a penthouse office on, uh, in the building called the Master Building up on, uh, off of Riverside Drive. And um, 
he could look down on everything. He couldn't hear any of the noise of the city. And he didn't have to relate to anyone except those people who came through his door. When he chose a summer place, it was up in Holderness, New Hampshire, where, you know, there were people who he knew and became friends with, but they all had the rule that, or he had the rule that in the mornings he would be alone to write. And, you know, Ellie, when I got to know him was after he had moved to the Bay Area. And where did he move? To the very top of the Tiburon Peninsula. So it was crazy. So that you look out one way, I mean, it was marvelous in a way, and you could look on a clear day all the way down to San Jose. To the right was the Golden Gate Bridge. To the left was the East Bay. Um, to the upper right was uh, Mount Tamalpais. You And where were people? Well, there were other houses, but he liked to be alone a lot. And he. I think it wasn't just to contemplate things. I think he was unnerved by by various people. That, that's I mean, what I was going to say. I don't think it's being at all an introvert. I think it makes perfect sense that he it, it was a safe a safe supportive place where he could still feel a part of and engaged, right? Because he struggled with loneliness mm-hmm. his whole life and feeling alone even when he was with people. And if you look at his upbringing and the chaos the the sort of I can just feel it in my body the energetic like attack that he must have constantly felt in his household um, the level of insecurity and of um, just chaotic interaction and no clear sense of where the ground was and if he got it then it would shift that it makes perfect sense that with George as someone who was grounded and had a strong sense of self and so then could have clear boundaries and not be threatened by someone else's insecurities or even um, you know small attacks that it it seems to completely fit and the fact that yes maybe you would expect him to be different and you thought this person thought that he was t- you know tense and and maybe cold because you're not you're not really understanding the whole picture that it takes someone that is has spent a life sort of being able to consciously um, through their struggle appreciate the experience and then um, both project it onto other people's and also then being able to take what other people are experiencing and internalize it um, that sensitivity and that combination of intellect. Uh, doesn't necessarily translate to an easy, flowing, comfortable um, experience in the world. No, not at all. And, um, you know, he had a, he just speaking to that point, and I think it's really right, right on. And he imagined himself early on, he wanted to be a hero. It didn't matter that he, you know, he didn't worry about it knowing a gazillion people, and um, he wanted to be of aid by, uh, there's that one remark in the middle of the 30s when he's going back to Union Theological Seminary, where he says he wants to be to religion what Nietzsche was to philosophy and Cezanne was to painting. Well, that's heavy-duty stuff. And... um, Part of that is so he could be separate from people and look, not look down on them, but give them from the mountaintop. And uh, is, and, and be you know, looked up to, right? 
Sorry. There's that other piece of that coin, the other side of that coin is yes, but then also is the real desire to have a sense of value and validity and, and looked up to finally a place, finally a no, place where I fit. No question. One of the things that I found really interesting, though, about his grappling with his own life was unlike a great many people who put aside um, or try to repress uh, all the conflict of uh, growing up and youth and adolescence and, and those sorts of insecurities and lonelinesses and depressions, he finally, uh, starting in, I guess, the late 30s, uh, late 1930s, began to use his own life in the early part and glean, gleaning from that all sorts of psychological lessons. And I mean directly um, in the sense that he retells the story of his life um, only modestly um, hidden, uh, modestly covered over. Um, he uses his insecurities, he uses the kind of psychological drama of his life as a set piece that he just changes the names and changes, you know, the places. Um, but basically, um, it's a recitation uh, in The Art of Counseling and in his one of his last books, In Power and Innocence. Uh, two perfect examples, but there are many in between, of his um, using the drama of his life as a way to get at what must be, he thinks, um, the drama in everyone's life that um, and how to overcome it. And, of course, he keeps on doing that because he never quite overcomes it. Yeah, I was going to um, say, and how to overcome it, that is the driver. <laughs> what What yeah. is the trick? What am I missing? What, what, what uh, pamphlet didn't I get that explained? Well, Maybe I'll I think, create you know, it. that's also a good way to be an existentialist because the existentialist would say, there is no pamphlet. There is no answer. You make your life by acting in the world and being in the world. And, um, you know, authentically. Authentically, Who you yeah. are as reflected out. Yeah. Uh, and, and there are no That is the pamphlet. It's just really short. It's just one <laughs> sentence. It's, it's right. just that. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so with, what, with that, our, our, our last question, um, how do you feel about your creation? May said, one can never decide point blank to write a book. One has to grow into it. It's harder even than marriage, for in marriage you can get divorced. Uh, but once you commit your mind and spirit to a book, the demon gives you no peace. Have, so That's was this I, true for you? Have you found peace? Has the demon given you peace? Well, um, yes, relief. I don't know about peace, but relief in the sense that I, I you know, I was, I've been working on this book for maybe 25, 26 years. And it's not because I was struggling every day, you know, at the writing, at first the typewriter, then the word processor. Um but it was because I had so many other things I had to do. I mean, I was teaching, and I enjoyed teaching, loved it. I also built some programs at University of Texas because I like to do that. 
And all of it, and then I also had to, you know, growing up as a Jew, I had to learn modern Protestant theology and find out exactly what he was getting at seminary. So there was that too. Um, There was a lot of learning. It was like going back to graduate school. And the other thing is, and I had this exchange with my editor um, when I handed in the manuscript. And I, I said something like, it's a little late, because um, the contract did not show 25 years later. But um, but here's my thesis. <laughs> but here, no, but, I, but she added something very important, that she didn't think you could write about a life as eventful as his that goes on uh, 85 years, and he's really working until he's 82 or 83, not as a therapist, but as a writer. Um, uh, trying to get over um, the, the, debil- the debilities brought on by a stroke. Um, you have to live more life. I couldn't have written this book when I was 25 or 30 or 35. That There are things about living that um, I learned a lot of. So I, don't, I think it was relief rather than peace. Because after all, what does a writer do but think about the next book or the next article or whatever? Um, but I think, yes, uh, one of the things about writing a book is that, yes, you can't do- really divorce it. I mean, some people do give up projects, but I never could, um, uh, in part because I chose, I chose books to write that had real, the subject had real meaning for me. And, um, and the more I learned about his life, the more I found it compelling. Well, and it seems you, uh, you took it on with with eyes wide open. I know that originally someone was suggesting you write a book about Carl Rogers, and you were like, "No, I don't think that's not for me." But then you thought, "Well, maybe, maybe Rollo May." And then I laughed because at one point you say, "Yeah, I, I just you don't say serendipity, but it was obvious that there was serendipity pushing you towards writing this book." So yeah, I was well, still a little bewildered why I chose to do it. Well, if I could just add something that. The funny part about it is I heard Rollo May lecture twice when I was in uh, graduate school at Berkeley. And he had just moved to the Bay Area. And um, there were a couple of different places and people I knew who I could get invitations to, small group, large group, whatever. Um, wasn't terribly impressed. And, And I found that, that he sometimes could be very impressive as, a speaker, mm-hmm. but other times not really. Um, but one of the important things to me was that I had, and I had read exactly one book of his. Now he wrote fifteen books, um, and or more, uh, editing and all sorts of things. But I read one, The Courage to Create. But the thing about that reading, this was back in uh, just when it came out, nineteen seventy-five. As I was finishing my doctoral dissertation, my first biography, first biography I wrote, I was really having problems with a particular chapter. And I was in therapy at the time, and it wasn't getting me anywhere uh, on that particular, it got me a lot of places in other ways, but uh, this, there were lots of things that were preventing me, or I was preventing myself from getting into the finishing of this particular chapter. And 
I went down the street and I went into one of the bookstores on Telegraph Avenue and because that was a way to kill time and run away from writing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, browsing in a bookstore is great. Um, and there was this book on the, uh, on the shelf, The Courage to Create. It had just come out. And so I bought it. I went home and I read it. And it's not a how-to book at all. It's a philosophical, psychological discussion of the creative process. Uh, I love it um, because it helped me get through and rev up again to finish that chapter. Now that is, you know, somehow the book stuck with me. And I still have that copy, actually. Um, I, so I would that, definitely posit that walking, wandering in a bookstore is never wasting time, number one. <laughs> number two, that from an, an external observer, the serendipity is clear. You were, you were guided toward that bookstore to pick up this book to answer your, your problem that you could not solve in therapy. So, Right. And, and it was Rollo May. It wasn't Carl Rogers. But, you know, John Vasconcellos and I remained friends until his death in the 2000s, um, he didn't hold it against me. Because <laughs> he liked Rollo, too, and so that was a good choice, too. But um, in any case, yeah. So there was a connection, but it, was, it needed something beside that, because I'd never written about psychology. I'd written about a lot of things, um, but never psychology. And... Uh, I had experienced psychotherapy, and I knew some psychoanalysis, but that is only one part of psychology. So anyway, the, it, it was a, you know, if I were going to use the, the kind of popular terms, it, it was a journey <laughs> doing this book. Um, I met wonderful people along the way, um, experienced uh, different parts of the world, one one research trip took me to uh, Thessaloniki uh, because that was where he was a missionary teacher in the early 30s. And I said, how can I write this book without going to Greece? I mean, you know, uh, academics find very good reasons for taking not taking trips for maybe reasons other people couldn't quite see. But in any case, um, it was, as I say, it was a re-education. It seems very fitting, a journey, an adventure, and a labor of love, I think, all in the... Yeah. 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 And just one last thing. Mm -hmm. I wanted to write it not for psychologists necessarily, because Mm -hmm. Rollo was... You know, there's no Rollo May theory out there like there is for Carl Rogers or Abraham Maslow or Irv Yalom or... And, you know, people Rollo knew and respected and cared about. Um, and his kind of psychotherapy is kind of out of fashion these days. Um, long-term therapy, nobody can afford it for one thing. But the, um, the thing is, I wanted to speak to a broader audience because that was the audience Rollo May spoke to. And that was important to him and it was important to me. Um, and so I also took a lot of time writing and rewriting and, you know, hoping for a clarity that people could be excited about and get into the journey. So my hope is, is that what that is what happens to at least those who find out about the book, want to read it. Um, but 
that's about it. I mean, that... Uh, and, and maybe there it, is a theory. Maybe Rollo has a theory. It just never got a name. I mean, I certainly, after reading your book, see that that it all distills down to what, what we talked a little bit about, this idea that this willingness of self-exploration and self-reflection and then finding um, certainty in that sense of self and then its expression out in the world, that, that that's... So <laughs> you work on what that might be called, Robert, and well, then, and then uh, slap a title on it. Yeah. Um, late in life, he was interviewed uh, by a journalist in the Bay Area, and I think it's in the book, I'm pretty sure it's in the book, where he was asked, you know, what do you consider yourself? And he said, well, I think of myself as a minister. I think of myself as a writer, and I think of myself as a psychologist, in that order. Mm-hmm. Now, it may be that this was, he was getting old, he, maybe he was thinking about his days at Union Theological Seminary, but I think also part of what he brought to his expression um, was extraordinarily good training in doing sermons. <laughs> And in knowing how to engage people in issues. Um, And in fact, for Love and Will, which was his big bestseller, um, actually a psychoanalyst who he knew and respected greatly, uh, gave it a kind of mixed review in Washington. I think it was Washington Star. It might have been the Washington Post. And um, said, basically... Uh, this was a essentially a sermon for the times, and that was a role he really liked. Um, you know, and the theology was this mixture of philosophy and psychology and um, de-theologized religion, uh, all sorts of things um, that were going on in his head. And uh, and so, so so there it is. There's the key: mind, mm-hmm. body, spirit. Yes. That that is how shall we live, all together, mind, body, (laughs) spirit, the minister, psychology, and the intellect. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us today, and that got me thinking. Well, thank you. This has been uh, just really enjoyable. Oh, so glad. uh, I now know your you exist. I not, I didn't, you know, I'm not, a, I wasn't a big podcast person, but now at least there's one I'm tuning into. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's my downfall. I have no idea how to self-promote. So, so thank you. I'm so excited to have another listener. Um, and, and thank you for the wonderful, wonderful book. Thanks. Okay. Take Bye-bye. Care. Bye.